Hi, this is Ben Lola, back to the Bible Canada. In this third message of our series, Remembering the Second Coming of Jesus, we'll examine the issue around the signs of his coming. So let's listen to Dr. Neufeld as we go to our text in Matthew chapter 24, verses 1 to 35. In this short one-week series about the second coming of Jesus, uh, we have seen that we should not be taken in by those who predict the date of Christ's coming. You know, and I also made it clear that we should eagerly await the second coming of Jesus. That was the theme of 2 Peter 3. Don't adopt the attitude of the cynic that this thing will never happen. And then from Daniel 7, we've seen that Jesus will come after all the beasts of the earth have ruled for their one hour. And then after the final beast, Jesus will then set up his kingdom, his empire that will have no end. But today I want us to examine the very difficult matter of the signs of his coming. Are there clear signs that we're living in the last days? Now, if you've been following this series, you heard me say that the time from the first to the second coming of Jesus is called the last days. And that's how the phrase the last days or the end times is used in the New Testament. But sometimes when we use the words the end times, people mean by that, do you think that the generation that's now alive will witness the second coming of Jesus? Is that hour upon us now? See, in order to answer that, we need to ask whether there are specific Bible prophecies that are being fulfilled in our day. Examples that some use will include the reformation of the nation of Israel after 2,000 years or the movement towards a global economy and thus a one-world government. And some argue that the movement towards a cashless economic system and so forth. Are these kinds of things legitimate reasons to believe that we are now seeing what some call the prophetic calendar moving forward? In order to answer that, I have decided to do a brief study of Matthew 24, and if you don't know it, it's a kind of foundational text upon which much of our view of the end times is actually formed. So let me give some background. Jesus taught what is recorded in Matthew 24 during Passion Week. That means he taught it on that week in which he was crucified. He was crucified on a Friday, and what is recorded in Matthew 24 was taught on that Tuesday. He had arrived in Jerusalem during Passover on Sunday, Sunday we now call Palm Sunday. The crowds had cheered him as the long-expected Messiah, and Jesus' disciples were taken up in the enthusiasm. They expected that the end times were upon them then, and Jesus would begin his messianic reign. But on that Tuesday, Jerusalem was filled with controversy as religious leaders of the Jews spent the day disputing with Jesus. The city was in an uproar. As Jesus and his disciples left the temple that Tuesday evening and were going away, the disciples pointed out the beauty of the temple. And Jesus responded by saying, Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Now I imagine everyone's head snapped around and they must have stared at Jesus hardly knowing what to say. They had expected Jesus to come to Jerusalem to claim the kingdom, and now he was speaking about the destruction of the temple, which must mean a cataclysm and the coming of a holocaust against the Jews, and all of that sounded apocalyptic. What was going on? And so we come to Matthew 24, verse 3. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the close of the age? Clearly, the things that Jesus had been saying left the disciples with questions about the great coming day of the Lord. 
See, a great number of Bible commentators have seen the parallel between Jesus leaving the temple on that Tuesday and the glory of God leaving the temple in the book of Ezekiel in the Old Testament just prior to its destruction by the Babylonian army. Jesus leaving the temple in his day symbolized that the temple would now be destroyed. In effect, that's what Jesus said. Israel had rejected their Messiah. The glory has departed from the temple, and not one stone will be left standing upon another. And the disciples were amazed. If this is what was coming, then surely the end of the age was at hand. So Matthew 24, 4-7 records what happened next. And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. You'll hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these things are but the beginning of the birth pains. See, it's clear what Jesus is doing. The disciples were thinking of the end of the world, and Jesus is telling them that the hour is further off than they thought. They shouldn't look at every war and every famine or every earthquake as a signal of the end. These are merely birth pains. See, I remember when Kathy was pregnant with our first, and we were living in Saskatoon and had had taken a stroll along the banks of the South Saskatchewan River. She was very pregnant, and we were a, a long distance from where we had parked the car, and suddenly, for the first time, she felt a contraction. It was the first time she ever felt one, and I, in panic, thought that I would be delivering my baby by myself and washing it off on the shores of the river. It was not to be. The birth of the baby was still weeks away. And that's the image. The convulsing of the earth is a sign that the end is coming. It just might be longer than you think. And then Jesus mentions, to continue with our image, five labor pains or five signs that the end is coming, but they might be further off than we imagine. Let's run through all five of these signs. First, Jesus said there will be false messiahs. Second, He mentions wars in various places, and when we hear him say that, it seems to us that things are carrying on as before. Yes, they are, but war is a sign that the end is coming. Third, persecution. Jesus promised that his followers would be put to death. He says so in verse 9, where he says, Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Please notice here that Jesus is anticipating that his gospel will go to all the nations and that in some circles, his followers will be put to death for his name's sake. Jesus promised that his followers would be persecuted and hated and killed by many. And Paul thought that was a privilege. He said so in Philippians 1.29, where he says, For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Persecution happened at the very foundation of the church. Jesus was persecuted. Not only was Jesus falsely put to death, so were his followers. Acts 4 records how Peter and John were put in prison. Acts 6 records the death of Stephen, the first Christian martyr. He was stoned to death. Acts 12 records the martyrdom of the first of the 12 disciples, James, put to death by the sword. History records that the apostle Paul was beheaded and Peter was crucified. Eleven of the twelve disciples died a martyr's death. The first several hundred years of the Christian church record a story of terrible suffering. But that story still goes on today. 
See, I've been asked whether the beheading of Christians by ISIS in Syria is a sign of the end times or the massive persecution against believers all over the world in unprecedented manner is a sign of the end. And I respond by saying it's a birth pain that tells us that the end is yet to come and it will surely come. Now, the the fourth birth pain, and it's called apostasy, or the falling away from the faith. Listen to Jesus in verses 10 to 13. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. See, I notice that the temptation to fall away comes from different sources comes from persecution. It comes because heresy is taught and it's tolerated. And it comes because a lawless, licentious culture tells us we don't have to hold to the ethics of a believer. But here Jesus reminds us that we must endure to the end. Faithfulness to the end is a mark of the ones who have been of the elect of God. And then a fifth birth pain, worldwide gospel proclamation. Listen to verse 14. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Now, I love this verse. In spite of all the above, Jesus said, the gospel will still advance. It would happen right alongside of evil. And that, by the way, is what's happening right now. Now, what did Jesus mean when he said this? See, some Bible teachers believe that every language must have a Bible, and then the end will come. And others argue that every ethnic group should have a church within their culture. Others, every people grouping should hear the gospel in their own language. And others say that it means the gospel will become global. Well, here's a little secret. It's not entirely clear what Jesus meant because he didn't specify exactly what he meant. Only that his gospel and church would reach unprecedented levels. And then he said the end would come. So it seems to me that the only sign of the end times, that the end is very near, is unprecedented expansion of the gospel. More about that when we come back. Like the disciples, we too might wonder whether all the events and things happening in our world and in the church are real signs that point to his coming in our generation. Are all those predictions about the end times that we hear, are they helpful or do they just sow seeds of confusion? After the break, we'll examine a prophetic test case for knowing whether we're really in the last days. Thanks for listening. 1 Thessalonians 5.2 says, For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. As we've been discovering in our series, it's important for us to remember that Jesus is indeed coming back. We may not know when that will be, but we must be prepared for that day. All week, Dr. Neufeld has been teaching us what we need to know about this doctrine from Scripture. If you want to own this one-week series for yourself, then be sure to order your free CD of Remembering the Second Coming of Jesus this month. Call us at 1-800-663-2425 or email us at info at backtothebible.ca. Now let's go back to the Bible with Dr. John Neufeld. We have been looking at birth pains, signs that the coming of Jesus is at hand. But as Jesus has warned us, don't get so focused on these that you're easily led astray thinking that one of these is the sign that it's happening right away. 
But then continuing to use the image of the birth pains, Jesus then introduces his disciples to what we would call a sharp pain or what some Bible teachers have called a prophetic test case, a way of knowing for certain that all things are proceeding exactly according to God's plan. I'm reading verses 15 to 21. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, then Matthew interjects, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house, and let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days." Pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath, for then there will be a great tribulation such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, nor and never will be. Now, many reading this text assume immediately that Jesus is speaking here about the end of the age, but I'm going to argue that's not what he's doing. He's referring back to the remark he has made about the temple, that not one stone will be left upon another. He's offering a prophetic test case, a sharp pain to help the disciples understand that all things are proceeding according to plan. The phrase, abomination that causes desolation, comes from the book of Daniel in chapters 9 and in 11. In Daniel, it's a prophetic reference to something which was fulfilled in 167 B.C. A Syrian commander, man named Antiochus, erected an altar to Zeus in the temple in Jerusalem and sacrificed a pig on it, made the practice of Judaism punishable by death, and called himself Epiphanes, meaning he was the manifestation of God. This was the abomination that Daniel predicted, and now Jesus is using that incident and is predicting another one like it. See, many Bible teachers point out that Jesus' words in Matthew 24 were fulfilled in the year A.D. 70 in an event which has been called the war against the Jews. Jesus calls what happened during this time period the most monstrous and savage attack against a people in human history. The devastation of Jerusalem stretched beyond Jerusalem so that Jews literally fled to the mountains and hid in caves. The Romans were brutal, killing all with such force that anyone who got away had no time to go home to collect their belongings. They just ran. Josephus, the Jewish historian, tells what happened. It was a time of unprecedented suffering. He tells of savagery and slaughter and disease. Mothers, he says, ate their own children to survive the siege that the Romans laid against Jerusalem. You know, there have been a greater number of deaths in history, but there has never been a time in all human history in which so high a percentage of a city's population was so thoroughly and painfully exterminated and enslaved as during the siege and fall of Jerusalem in AD 70. The Romans eventually burned the temple with fire, utterly desecrating everything the Jews thought of as holy. The gold from the temple ran between the stones, and the Romans pried one stone from another, literally fulfilling Jesus' prophecy. And to this very day, no Jewish temple has been allowed to occupy the space on the Temple Mount. Indeed, as Jesus left the temple that day, the glory had departed. Now, here's the key. The destruction of Jerusalem is a sure indication of the truth of Jesus' words regarding the end of the age and his coming again. Furthermore, we believe that what happened to Jerusalem and Israel in around AD 68 to 70 and beyond is a sign of devastation that will occur at the end of the age. 
But how close are we to the end of the age now? Remember that Jesus taught that we should not set dates. We're not to confuse the birth pains with the birth. We are to be hopeful that Christ will return, and we are to be patient at the same time. And so in verses 22 to 28, Jesus gives more warnings about false messiahs and false prophets leading people astray during this time of birth pains. He wants his disciples and his followers after them to know that they are not to be deceived. We are not to be spooked by easy assumptions that the end is right now. But then Jesus launches us to the very end of the age, and I'm reading from verses 29 to 30. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not uh, shed its light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Of course, Jesus is telling us that when he comes, it will not be in secret or private, but that his coming will be witnessed by the earth. All of creation itself will bear witness, and all human beings will watch. This is a visible, glorious, overwhelming event. His coming will signal the end of the age. The stars will fall from heaven. All the cosmos will tremble when the mighty maker of heaven and earth reclaims this earth as its own. And then, having spoken those words, Jesus brings the entire point of the matter to an application. I'm reading verses 32 to 34. From the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branches become tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Now, there's been much controversy regarding these verses, but I'm going to, at least as best as I can, attempt to explain them. The generation Jesus is speaking about is the generation he's speaking to. This generation refers to the disciples and their generation. But wait, they didn't see the second coming of Jesus. Well, no, they didn't. But let's remember what they did see. They saw all the birth pains Jesus was speaking about. And furthermore, they did see the armies surrounding Jerusalem, the test case, we called it. They saw the temple burned down. Not one stone was left on another. They saw people fleeing to the mountains to escape the wrath of the Roman government. You know, recently I stood on the mountain fortress of Masada, where the last holdouts of the Jewish freedom fighters tried to resist Rome. And I was again reminded that even there in that place of a fortress that should have held out everybody, they could not hold out. And furthermore, all the birth pains from persecution to false messiahs to false teaching to people turning away from the faith, all those occurred. That is what that generation saw. And since that generation saw it, then knowing this, that the coming of the Lord is near. You see, the fig tree does not represent Israel returning to the promised land. It represents the birth pains telling us that Jesus really is coming back. But how is his coming near since the generation that saw the war against the Jews by the Romans, well, that was 2,000 years ago. Uh, But we're asking the question of timing from our perspective. Remember 2 Peter, with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as a single day. And with that, in verse 36, Jesus says, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father only. 
And that's why it's sheer vanity to claim to know if we are the generation who will see the second coming. But in verse 44, Jesus added, you must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. See, faithful Christians are not called upon to make charts and graphs or make predictions about exactly the timing of Christ's return. Rather, we are called upon to live in expectation. For Jesus, who prophesied in detail the destruction of the temple, has also told us in detail that he's coming back. And so in this new year, we live in expectation. Perhaps this is the year in which Jesus returns for his own. John, uh, this subject of the second coming of Christ is incredibly important. Uh, It's throughout Scripture, and so we know it's being taught. But sometimes we can become obsessed by it, I think, and I'm not sure that's the route we're supposed to be going. And it robs us, perhaps, of the things that God would have us do. I think the doctrine of the second coming of Jesus is to encourage faithfulness in our living today. I want to be living in such a way that when Christ returns, that I can be found doing the master's business in such a way that I don't have to be ashamed. And so the the knowledge that he can come at any moment is an important thing for, for all of us. The end time events could tumble into our time at any point in time. Now, I always like to say, I, I think Christ is coming during my lifetime, given or taken, uh, you know, a thousand years or so. But when I say that, I don't want to give the impression that it might be so far off I don't have to think about it. I want to say it should dominate my thinking in a healthy way, not an unhealthy one. So I'm not uh, setting dates, but I'm living with great anticipation. I think that's the balance we're looking for. Today, we've learned so much about not only the signs of his coming, but what will happen on that day of the Lord's return. We know that he's coming soon, though we're not to waste time speculating which day or what hour, for not even the Son of Man knows. But all of us are called to live with expectation, hope, and obedience in the light of this. I hope that today's study has helped you discover what the Bible really has to say, so that we don't become led astray by much of what we hear today regarding the end times. Let's continue to learn more tomorrow as Dr. Neufeld teaches us on a passage from 2 Thessalonians entitled, Keep Calm and Live Expectantly. So be sure to join us tomorrow. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. Well, it's December 30th, and you know what that means. We're just two days away from the end of 2015. At Back to the Bible Canada, we reflect on what an amazing year of ministry it's been. From having our very first Canadian Bible teacher, to expanding our reach on the air across Canada, to hosting our very first trip to Israel, and much, much more. God has indeed been so faithful and allowed us to accomplish so much, even what we'd not thought possible. And none of this was possible without the generous support of our listeners and friends. So on behalf of the ministry, a special thank you to those who have partnered with us at this critical time of year. With just a couple of days left in December, we're looking for more partners to help us reach our year-end goal of $390,000. It seems like a big amount, but together we believe this goal can be reached. Your gift will allow us to further the mission of Bible teaching and engagement and helps us to gain a strong momentum as we begin another year of ministry. So would you please consider a gift, big or small, any amount would be immensely appreciated today. 
To donate, call us at 1-800-663-2425. That's 1-800-663-2425. Or visit us online at backtothebible.ca.